believe it, we are almost through the New Testament. And Pastor Scott was telling me this week about how he's... Um, from a couple of folks who were uh, doing well, kind of been reading through the New Testament. In fact, they're already in Revelation. They kind of read ahead. You know, you've always got these kind of overachievers here at ZPC, and so they've already read ahead. But uh, it's been great to be able to journey together uh, over this last year by reading through the New Testament. And now we're getting close to the end. Uh, just a couple more books, and today we're looking at First John uh, chapter 1. Verses 1 through the second verse of the second chapter. So I invite you to hear these words. John writes to several churches and he writes this. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed and we have seen it and testified to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not know what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we come to you on this morning praying for your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So, uh, as hopefully you are aware of by now, next Saturday we are having our second uh, um, annual uh, Back to Bethlehem. Uh, and if you don't know what that is, it's an opportunity for you to come here on a Saturday evening and uh, to really be able to experience more of what it would have been like to have been an eyewitness uh, to the birth of Jesus. It's a very kind of uh, experiential experience, to be a little bit redundant, um, but one that kids, of course, really love. They love being able to come and to experience that and to see what it would have been like. And uh, whenever I think about uh, something like Back to Bethlehem, I'm always reminded of when I was a kid and, and we used to do a living nativity. I've uh, shared this before that um, I love doing the living nativity. And I remember before my first one, what I really wanted to be was a shepherd because I loved sheep. And I knew sheep well uh, because I had made a lot of sheep in my lifetime. Uh, and by that, of course, I just mean I had gotten a lot of cotton balls and put them on construction paper. You know how you do? And then draw like four little sticks. And then if you were really creative, you put little ears on it. And I thought, that's a sheep. And that's, that's a legit sheep. And so my picture 
was that as soon as I did this living nativity, it would be like a living cotton ball, white and fluffy, just there. And who wouldn't want to have one of those just to pet and to play with for a couple of hours? It was going to be amazing. But of course, it only took about 20 or 30 seconds for me to realize that this wasn't actually a sheep at all. No, just, you know, a little bit of time being next to this kind of mangy, stinky animal that was doing things that you had to be careful where you walked and all of that. And, and within a minute, I knew this was the last place I wanted to be, right? There's a reason why I signed up to be Joseph the next year, right? That's a much cleaner, because it was a fake baby. But that's real, right? And so one of the great things about these kinds of experiences is that it helps you to begin to understand a little bit more about what it would have really been like. And so it's really important for us to give children the opportunity not just to see this as some kind of, you know, fairy tale story, but to really try and experience the reality. But what I've also come to discover is that not only is it important for children, it is just as important, if not more important, for us as adults to also be reminded of the reality of the birth of Jesus. Because I think kind of the older you get, perhaps, it gets easier to make that story become this kind of little quaint children's tale, if you will, that becomes disconnected, by and large, from our image of God. In many ways, we would oftentimes, as we go through the difficulties of our lives, we sometimes begin to prefer to, to, to have a kind of God who's just up in the clouds, if you will. Almost, I like to think about it like a Santa God, if you will. And, and he almost becomes just this escape for us, right? Whenever we're in need or we need something, all of a sudden he'll just kind of come through the chimney or someplace and he'll drop us a couple of gifts and answered prayer here or there, a little bit of peace when we need it, and then, and then get out of our way and go right back up again where we don't actually have to deal with them in our day-to-day -day life. And, and we end up kind of with this almost Santa like God rather than Emmanuel, God with us. And you see, the churches to whom John is writing, they're struggling, scholars tell us. There are a lot of factions for a couple of different reasons, but one of those is that they were struggling, some of them at least, with really believing that Jesus had actually been born in the flesh. That it wasn't just some kind of spiritual God, but that this was really Emmanuel, God with us. And for John, it was critical that the churches understood what it meant that Jesus had literally been born physically on this earth. Right? We see it, of course, in John's gospel that he wrote. You know, it's a pretty famous passage. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, but even in 1 John, in the passage I just read, perhaps you heard it. Here's, let me just reread this verse again. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. This life was revealed and we have seen and testify to it. In other words, what's John's saying, he's saying this Jesus is somebody who we have actually seen, who we have heard, and whom we have touched. This is a real being, this Jesus was, human, fully divine, but also fully human. Now, why would that be important? Why does it matter? Does it really matter? Can't we just kind of have this spiritual Jesus? Does it matter that he was born in the flesh? Well, it does. 
Uh, One of the reasons, of course, is what Pastor Scott talked about a few weeks ago when we looked at Hebrews, which is that he understands our temptations. He understands our struggles. We do not serve a God who does not understand us. He's lived here. He understands that. And secondly, of course, is because of the fact, as we see here later on in our passage, that Jesus was an atoning sacrifice. In other words, because he came down in his humanity, he can make our own humanity come alive again, right? And so we have this sense of our salvation because of the fact that Jesus came in the flesh. But there's also another thing it seems to me that John's getting at here, which is why it is so important that we not just have kind of this ethereal Jesus, but a real Jesus in the flesh, which is because what that means is that because Jesus came here in his realness, in his flesh, means that Jesus meets us right here in our realness and in our flesh. In other words, because of the fact that Jesus was here in the midst of the dirt of this world means that he's also here in the midst of the dirt in our world, which means there is no way then that we can simply separate the spiritual from the physical part of who Jesus is, which means that we can never separate just a sense of spirituality from the difference it actually makes in our day-to-day life. Now, I think that's really important because the truth is, just like the church a couple thousand years ago to whom John was writing those churches, we would prefer at times, it seems to me, to just have kind of more of a spiritual kind of God. It's a lot easier when it's fuzzy. If you were here last week, you'll know we talked about that when it comes to love. Remember our conversation about love and I said, you know, everybody, if I just said, hey, guys, because that's how I would say it. Just like, hey, guys, we need to have more love. What would you guys say? You'd be like, yeah, we do. Right? Everybody likes that. It's groovy love. It's just kind of fuzzy love. Everybody likes that love. It's just, yeah, that's all we need because it, it doesn't actually cost anything, which means it doesn't really mean anything. But when I say, okay, we got to have love, you're like, yeah. And that means that you have to love that person. Well, I don't want to love that person. You don't understand that person. You don't, you don't understand what that person has done to me. You don't understand what that person has said to me. No, 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 no. I want love with no specificity. But then it, again, it doesn't mean anything. If it doesn't cost you anything, it doesn't mean anything. So we're not just talking about love, nor are we just talking about spirituality. Because you know us, like we love the spiritual talk. Lots of people love spiritual talk. You know what? I, I'm not religious. I am spiritual. See, the great thing about it is it's a little bit like a cloud, right? It's just this hazy thing, which means, of course, that it wraps itself around you and you can make it whatever you want to make it. Because it's nice and, and fuzzy and soft and you're in charge, really. But you see, with Jesus being born in the flesh, there becomes, it becomes a bit more specific. It, becomes actually, it actually means something. In other words, it's not just kind of up there in the clouds. It's really attached to something. There is a significance to it. You cannot disconnect the spiritual from what's going on all around us. 
Eugene Peterson talks about this um, in a book called um, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. He uses the verbiage, a dehumanized Jesus. That's how he describes what this looks like. And he says, we cannot serve a dehumanized Jesus because then, th- then it actually makes no real impact. And in fact, uh, this is what he says. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but bear with me here. He says this. He says, a dehumanized Jesus allows us to develop a practice of love that has nothing to do with action people. We are free to practice a love of God that consists of a mix of music and mountains and stories that fills our hearts with inspiring thoughts and feelings without all the distraction and bother of people. A dehumanized Jesus is a dehumanized God with us that gives us license to customize a life of love entirely to our own convenience without involving us in sacrifice or patience. Loving is a dehumanized, loving a dehumanized Jesus means loving in a way that has nothing to do with anything particular men and women are doing in our community. We become lovers of ideas and feelings, lovers of ecstasy and novelty, but certainly not lovers of the God who so emphatically revealed himself in human flesh and blood, and certainly not lovers of our brothers and sisters, at least the ones who don't provide us with intimations of sublimity or ecstasy. See, this is not the kind of Christianity which John understood or which John would have understood at all, right? And that's why John understands that there is no way that we can disconnect our fellowship with God, our relationship with God, with our relationships with one another, right? And so, so what does he say here? He says this in our passage, we declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. In verse seven, he says, if we walk in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And then later on at the end of the book in chapter four, he says that those who love God but hate their brothers and sisters are liars, It's hard to be clearer than that. What John is saying is if you are in fellowship with God, a God who is fully human and fully divine, not just divine, not just spiritual, then it has to change how you see one another. This is what we said last week, remember? It means that you may have to have a love that stretches because it's not always easy to love those around us, but we begin to see them differently when we have a unique kind of relationship with God. But now there's something else that changes, it seems to me. Which is a part of the reason as well why we need one another so much is because it changes not only how we see each other, but it also changes even how we see God. Here's what I mean. I was uh, doing some work on this passage and someone uh, brought up C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. Maybe you've heard of it or read it even. And uh, In there, there's a chapter on friendship. Uh, and Lewis begins to talk about these three friends, right? They were really good friends. Jack. Ronald and Charles, and they were just best of friends. They were always hanging out. They loved playing euchre and watching the Colts, and um, they, were, they were Hoosiers. I'm sorry, Boilermakers, I don't know, but yeah, I'm making this stuff up, but you're getting the sense, right? They're just, they're these great friends, right? Year after year, decades, you know, they were, they were super tight. They loved each other. Maybe you have friends like this. Well, one year, Charles passed away. And obviously Jack and Ronald, for them, this was just brutal, right? As they kind of lost this friend. But Jack tried to kind of 
you know, console himself by saying, you know what, I, 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 we no longer have Charles, but now what that means is I, I have a little bit more time with Ronald, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to know even more about Ronald, and we're going to be even closer, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discover new things about Ronald because I have all of this time now to be with him and, and, and not, not with Charles anymore. And... But what Jack began to discover is that actually the opposite was true, was that actually he, he knew even less about Ronald, and the reason for that was this, because Charles always had a way of bringing out unique aspects of Ron, right? Unique aspects that, 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 that now that Charles has passed away, Ron never exhibited. Most of us know this, right? Usually we talk about it in the negative, right? Maybe you've had people like this uh, where you say, you know what, I really, like, I really like Jim, but I don't like Jim very much when he's with this person. Has anybody ever had that kind of, that kind of experience? It just doesn't elicit, you know, good things, well, this is kind of that on the flip, right? Which is that, you know what, maybe you have someone who's always kind of, you know, wild and energetic, but whenever they're around this particular person, they kind of calm down and you get to see a different side of them. Or maybe you have someone who's always really reclusive, but then whenever they're around that particular person, they come to life and you get to see a, a unique perspective. So, so, so what they say oftentimes is that, is that the only way to really know an individual is through a community because that community brings out unique parts of a person that are never brought out without a whole community around them. And so the same thing, it seems to me, is the way it is with God, right? Which is this fact that, you know what? The more that you're in a community and you see God through their lens, the more different parts of God's facet begin to kind of uh, uh, be made known to you, right? There are some of us that are contemplatives, right? And we are, are contemplatives and reflective, and, and, and they reveal to us certain parts of God, the quieter parts of God. Some of us are more justice-oriented, and we really know this justice of God. And, and so maybe if that's not you, you begin to see God through those lens a little bit more. Some of us are, are, are more intellectual, right? And so we see the rationality of God and through their lens. Others of us are really emotional, and so we begin to see the emotion of God through them. The point is this. You cannot know, just have this relationship of this spiritual relationship with God. Just, it's just me and God. No, no, no. It takes all of us because God becomes rich and we begin to see more of who he is whenever we see it through the lens of others. And so there is always this connection between who we know God to be and who we know others to be. The fact that Jesus came in the flesh is not just there to warm our hearts. It is there to begin to change how we understand Jesus and how we understand one another. But now here's the other thing. John Stott brings this up, which is that if that means that, that Jesus came down very personally in the flesh, it also means that we then can have a personal relationship with him. right? And I love how Tim Keller, when he thought about the sense of, of a personal relationship, what he says is, well, you know what happens inevitably, the more that you are in a relationship and the more that that deepens, that you have to begin, if you're going to continue to be in a relationship, you have to begin to curb some of your own freedoms if you really want to be in relationship and a healthy relationship. What does that mean? Well, when I was, uh, I didn't get married until I was 32, which, um, um, you know, for, for me, most of my friends were already married. You know, they were like, is Jerry ever going to get married? And surprisingly enough, I finally did. And, but what that meant was that from 18, when I left co to go to college, until 32, I had a ton of freedom and fun. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But I had a ton of freedom. I could do whatever I wanted to do. I could live wherever I wanted to live. I could travel wherever I wanted to travel. I could spend my money on whatever I wanted to spend my money. I could eat whatever I wanted. I could eat wherever I wanted. I could watch whatever I wanted on television. <laughs> the remote was all mine. It was incredible. And then I got married. And all of a sudden, you know, she had opinions. And we had to talk about where are we going to eat and what are we going to eat and what are we going to watch and where should we go. But then even more, we started having children. And all of a sudden, all of these freedoms, right? I thought about this yesterday. I, I, I did about 90% of things wrapped around what my children were doing and what they wanted to do. If I didn't have those children, I could have done whatever I wanted. Since none of them are here right now, wow. <laughs> but... What I now have, of course, is someone in Megan with whom I can live my life, someone that we can laugh together, that we can cry together. I never have to go someplace alone. I always have her with me. And with children now, of course, I have these kids with whom I can, you know, watch grow. And, and when I come home, you know, as I've told you all before, they come running up to me and I get to hold them close and they get to say, Daddy, nobody else gets to say Daddy. I get to watch them grow and I get to shape them and cheer them on and see them mature. It's this amazing thing, right? I get to have all of these experiences and there is great joy, but make no mistake about it. I had to curb, I had to give up a ton of freedom. But of course, it was absolutely worth it. And so what Keller goes on to say is, you know, when John's talking about living in the light versus living in the darkness, that there's this sense that when you're living in the darkness, you've not decided in those moments, you've not decided to give up some of your rights, to give up your freedom. You'd rather just kind of live over here where you're in control with the spiritual Jesus that you can just shape around you rather than you being shaped around Jesus. And we have to begin to sacrifice. We have to begin to give up some of those freedoms, to give up some of our talents and our treasures and what we would want to do in our, in our time if we want to be able to be in this richer relationship with Jesus. Of course, there's much to be gained. But one of the things I think that we always need to wrestle with is this, is if I asked you today even, what are some of those things, because you are in personal relationship with Jesus, what are some of those freedoms that you have set aside because you want to live more fully in the light? We should all be able to say something fairly quickly. Oh, I'm giving up this or that or that. And if we aren't, then we need to be asking ourselves whether or not we haven't kind of this, this, this spiritual Jesus that we've allowed to just kind of we to be in control rather than actually submitting ourselves to this relationship with Jesus Christ, with the one who came in flesh. But that's not easy. It is much easier to live in the darkness than it is to live in the light. And a part of the reason why it's so easy is because we easily deceive ourselves into thinking that we have done some things when we really haven't, into thinking that we're really serving a Jesus who's fully God and fully human when really we're just serving this kind of spiritual fuzzy Jesus over here. 
One of the other problems going on in the church to which John was writing was that there was a significant portion of them, scholars tell us, who it seems were also thought that they were living perfectly, that they had no sin, that they were never living in the darkness, that they were just always over here. Hey, we're just always in the light. This is why John, in kind of no uncertain terms, says that if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not within us. He's trying to tell them, if you think that you've got this all figured out and you're actually living in the lie all the time and you never make mistakes and you never sin and you're always, you know, you've got it all together, then you need to, you need to question that a bit. But we, we love to deceive. I was reading a few weeks ago an article in The Atlantic uh, that was saying they had done this research at the University of Massachusetts Amherst that said um, within 10 minutes of a conversation, for, for every 10-minute conversation, 60% of the students uh, lied at least once. And many of them actually lied multiple times. Now, you could just say, well, that's just college students. Or, well, those are New Englanders. What do you expect? More than likely, that's not the case. We just do it more politely, right, in the Midwest. And the article actually goes on to say, the truth be told, of course, more than likely, we lie to ourselves a lot more than we lie to others. We are inclined as a people to be self-deceived. Why? Well, because it's actually really hard to tell the truth, to see the truth, to admit the truth. It is painful to have to admit that we do not always get it right. It is painful to be able to just really live a life where you aren't struggling and where you are not admitting to the fact that you are struggling in one way or another. And so I think we have to actually be hyper-intentional about cultivating an environment in which we can be open and honest about the times when we're living in the darkness rather than living in the light. One of the ways, of course, that we do that, and it's something that we talk about a whole lot here, is the fact that remembering that we serve a God that is full of grace, a God, a Jesus who is our advocate, as John says. It's always easier to be honest with somebody and to confess to somebody who you know deeply loves you and cares for you than someone that you think is going to immediately punish you in some horrible way. And so if we want to actually be able to have that kind of experience where we can be open and honest, then we need to, first of all, really be able to remember again and again that we serve a God who loves us first and foremost. Do you hear that? Can I get an amen? amen. But it's also why, then, the community is so important. It's why John says the fellowship is so important, right? This is what we talked about last week, about making sure that we have an environment in which we can be honest with each other, right? Yeah, we are not perfect. This church is not perfect. Your pastor is not perfect. And we say this not to say like, hey, we're so happy about that. We're so proud of ourselves for the way that we stink. No, we say for this way that we say that then we know that we're dependent on Jesus. But it's also because of this. It is with one another that we oftentimes are able to be told and to be able to see those places where we are messing up, right? For one, of course, uh, when you get into deep relationship with people, they can speak into your life. They can speak truth into your life. Now, that takes a long time. Do not try that the first time you meet somebody. That is not the time to tell them where they are broken or sinful. But I think probably the way that we do it most often is not even by telling people, this is where I think you're falling short. It is by actually being able to see people who by their example, you see how they are living a life that they are leading by being open to their own struggle, to their own brokenness. 
I want to close with a story uh, that I've told before uh, to you all, so I'm sorry if you've heard it uh, once or twice, but it's a story that I think uh, that, that I always, it always comes to my mind. It comes from several years ago when I was doing some academic work at Fuller Seminary, and uh, we were there with a group of folks, a group of pastors, actually about seven or eight of us. So it was, it was a super good time, as you can only imagine. I mean, a great group of pastors together, it is a party. And so there we were, and we're, we're all together. And we had our typical professor, Todd uh, Bolsinger, and he was, uh, was kind of teaching us. And, but on this particular day, he had a guest come in who was going to speak. And so she came in, and she began to lecture us, right? And that was fine, and that's what she was supposed to do. But I have to tell you that as she was talking, I realized I had absolutely zero idea what she was talking about. I mean, I was completely lost. I, had no, I could not fathom what she was saying. It was like it was a different language, and I was trying to understand. But, of course, then I got really embarrassed, you know, by the fact that I had no idea. It made me feel kind of stupid. And so, of course, then what I, what I wanted to do is I didn't, I didn't want to feel stupid. And so I began to act like I knew exactly what it was that she was talking about. Right? And so I was kind of, you know, I'd look up at her, and she would talk, and I'd be like, Knowing that I was really saying nothing, I had no idea, right? So I'm just kind of doing this. And then, right, I wanted to know, am I completely alone? So, you know, and you know how you do this. You know, I, was, I wanted to look around to see about, you know, if other people seem to understand, you know. So you got to do it, you know. And you guys, you got to be smooth, you know, act like you're kind of, you know. You know. <laughs> and it was horrible. Because all the rest of them looked like they knew exactly what she was talking about. Because they were just like. Right? And so then the facade just kind of grew. So then I was like having to do it even more. Oh, yeah. Well, I was like I was at some kind of rock concert, right? I was just like, yeah, it's really good. And so, you know, she just kept going on. I thought, oh, this is never going to end. This is horrible. And so finally it did end. And we took a break. And I was like, oh, thank God. Maybe we'll come back and we can just move on. And we came back. And Todd, the professor, said, okay, well, what did you guys think about what she said? And I thought, okay, first of all, don't make eye contact with him. And so I just kind of looked off, you know, very inquisitively, like, oh, so much, so good, so good. I don't even know where I would start, Todd. It, just... it felt like about five minutes. It had probably only been about 20 or 30 seconds of silence as nobody was saying anything. When finally a guy named Daniel, who's a pastor out in uh, Spokane, Daniel said, you know, Todd, I got to tell you, I have absolutely no idea what she was talking about. <laughs> I was lost the whole time. And you should have, you can almost, we could feel the difference, right? The, the shift, like everyone just kind of stared to Daniel. And in that shift and with his honesty, you could hear almost tangibly the masks that we had been putting up all just kind of fall down and shatter on the ground. All of a sudden, we had these smiles. We were exhaling, and we were like, oh, my goodness, I didn't know either. What was she talking about? And I realized that none of us knew. And all of us, all of a sudden, we were piling. Oh, yeah, I was acting like it. Did you see me act like I knew what she was talking about? Oh, yeah, that was really good. No, none of us. We had been deceiving everyone else. Quite frankly, we'd even kind of been deceiving ourselves in a sense to think, well, maybe I know a little bit. No, no, no. And all of a sudden, it was this remarkable invitation by somebody leading the way to say, hey, I'm going to admit I might be dumb, but I don't want to lie anymore. I want to be really frank here. I have no idea what he was saying. The rest of us, all of a sudden, were more than willing to bring our confession. 
And we all looked at Daniel differently after that. Because we all wanted to know what gave Daniel the courage. None of the rest of us had the courage. What gave Daniel? What's different about Daniel that he was able to take that risk? And it was a real risk to say, hey, I might be stupider than the rest of you. And because of that, all of a sudden, we wanted to be more like Daniel. You see, we, as those who follow a real Jesus, not just a spiritual Jesus, but a Jesus who is fully divine and fully human, what that means is that Jesus enters into the dirt of our lives, those places where we are trying to lie and deceive others, those places where we just feel sad or guilty or shame, and Jesus enters into that and says, hey, I have been there, and now I am with you, and there is no part of your life that I am not going to shape and some way. There is no part of your life that I don't want to take hold of. But as you begin to grow in the light, you will begin to discover the love and the grace and the life that truly is life. And that is why the story of the birth of Jesus cannot just be some kind of romantic, nice little tale that we tell our children and that we sing about every year. But we must also grapple with this reality of what it means that Jesus was born in the flesh. So let me say it once again. The story of the birth of Jesus is not just there to warm our hearts. It is there to transform our lives and to change this world. Jesus, fully divine and fully human. Thanks be to God. Amen.